We are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, which means we have covered 14 chapters of the Gospel of Mark since the first week of January. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 20. PBS, the public television station, has a popular program called The Antiques Roadshow. Anybody here ever watched The Antiques Roadshow? A couple of you have, all right. And you're not even antiques. On this program, the country's leading auction houses and independent dealers come together to offer free appraisals to people around the country for antiques and various collectible items and sometimes junk. On one occasion, an elderly man from Tucson, Arizona, brought an old blanket he had inherited many years earlier. Though he considered that that blanket may have some value, he just threw it on the back of an old rocking chair in his bedroom, and there it was for many years. He just kind of forgot about it. Then when the Antiques Roadshow came to Tucson, he decided maybe he should just take that blanket down and get an opinion. So at the uh, PBS screening of the show, there he is on the screen with his blanket hanging on a rack right behind him with an expert appraiser. And the expert uh, appraiser told the man, he said, when I saw your blanket, my heart stopped. The expert explained that the blanket was a Navajo uh, chief's blanket woven in the 1840s. It was in excellent condition and was one of the oldest intact Navajo weaves to survive in the 21st century. Because of the rarity and significance of the blanket, the appraiser said quickly, it's worth three hundred and fifty dollars to $500,000. When the man walked into the convention center that day, he had this old blanket thrown over his shoulder and was just sort of haphazard about it. When he left the convention center that day, he was cradling his blanket and he had security guards on both sides of him. He left the building, immediately drove to his bank, and purchased a safety deposit box where he placed his blankie. Um, What had been junk to him had been transformed into a a precious treasure. When God saves you from the penalty of sin, he brings you from death to life and he transforms you and he opens your li- your eyes to love and to appreciate the supreme treasure of Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus we're entitled this humiliated. We're focusing on Mark chapter 15 verses 1 through 20. Jesus was humiliated. I think you have in a program. I don't know. Do we have the PowerPoint of Isaiah 53? You have it in your program. It's, on, it's right on your outline. He was despised. This is Isaiah 53, written in the uh, 8th century before Christ. So look at the words here. He was despised and rejected by mankind. This is uh, prophesied about someone who was to come. It would be the Messiah of Israel, the Christ. It refers to Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. This is a picture 
of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, surely he took, our, took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Did you see that, verse 6? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was clearly God's will for Jesus to suffer in great humiliation. Let's move now to the first century. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. And you're following on the outline. Number one, humiliated by the religious leaders. So let me give you a little context here of verse 1. It is Friday morning. We've been tracing the last week of Jesus. We've traced the life of Jesus. We've gone into the last week. Today, it's Friday morning. We call it Good Friday. Not so good for Jesus. On Thursday evening, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, and he instituted the Lord's Supper, what we call communion. It was on that night that Judas betrayed him. He was arrested, and all the disciples fled from him. Peter denied him three times. In Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65, Jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin. Remember, that's the Jewish ruling council. And he was assigned an initial guilty verdict for blasphemy. So that brings us to verse 1, the trial. The trial is verse 1. Very early in the morning, Friday morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Let's look at Jesus. He's totally exhausted. He's been up all night and not just staying awake. Uh, He's been beaten. He's been spit upon by the Jewish leaders. And um, he spent the night before the the Jewish religious leaders. The Sanhedrin, remember, is like the the, uh, Supreme Court and the Senate kind of all wrapped up into one. It's 70 members. Uh, So Jesus is sent to Pilate. Pilate is the highest standing Roman authority in Israel. The Jewish people were permitted to handle civil matters. They could rule on local affairs about law. They They were permitted those things, but they were not permitted to make decisions about capital crimes or to carry out capital punishment. Jesus primarily had two trials. It's kind of complicated when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see, all, you see the story and how, it, how the whole thing unfolds. It's complicated because each writer wanted to focus on something different. So, for example, Mark is the shortest, and he intentionally leaves out information because he's not trying to tell every little thing that happened along the way. We want that. That wasn't Mark's purpose. Everything Mark communicates is accurate, uh, Luke and John give us quite a few more details than Mark does. And they write later. Mark is the first writer of the gospel. So first, there are 
religious, the religious trial, and there are three episodes. Just think of that. Three hearings, three aspects, three parts before a final decision of guilt happened on this occasion. Mark doesn't tell us this, but the Apostle John does. Jesus first went to Annas, the former high priest, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. John just includes that detail. You also need to know that Annas and Caiaphas live in the same place. It's a large compound, family compound, and it's for the high priest. So father-in-law and son-in-law and their families are all in this compound. So Jesus goes to Annas because he's the one with all the political weight. Wake up the old man. He's the one who's going to really be uh, tell us what to do here. And then he goes, once Annas has this preliminary interview, he sends him to Caiaphas. And by that time, they've rallied the entire Sanhedrin. You know, how do they get these people out in the middle of the night? So the, the second hearing is before the Sanhedrin, and that's a passage we looked at at Mark 14, 53 through 65 last week. And it was kind of a bunch of trumped-up charges. They brought all the witnesses, and they couldn't get anybody to agree. And they finally accused, you know, they accused him of uh, destroying the temple. And um, they finally uh, get him for what they view as blasphemy because he says he's basically the Messiah. And they would see him coming in the clouds with great glory. And so for them, that was blasphemy, which it would, it would be accurate that he did claim to be the Messiah. And then thirdly, uh, verse 1, the third hearing, the third perspe- episode of this trial is a final decision by the Sanhedrin in verse 1. And this happens after verse 65 where um, they've, they've made their verdict and then they let the guards beat him and then they have to call him back at sunup. Here's the deal. There's something driving this, all these decisions. Right after sunup, the Romans are ready to bring justice. They don't, if you wait around till 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, you've missed it. The Romans are already about other things. We sometimes forget. So this is Israel. These are Jewish people. But they, are, uh, they really are under the authority of Rome, the Roman Empire in those days. So there are soldiers in town. Pilate's in town. Pilate didn't normally hang out in Jerusalem. He hung out at Caesarea. And uh, he came because of the Passover, because thousands and thousands and thousands of people extra came into the city. Uh, He just was there for peace. So he brought a cohort of 200 to 600 soldiers just for a little safety. So three episodes of the civil trial. Pilate... um, the Sanhedrin sent Jesus to Pilate, and, and uh, Pilate would have been warned. Uh, written charges were brought to Pilate. And then Pilate, uh, just to sort of be kind to Herod, um, sent Jesus to Herod. And then Herod sort of dialogued with him, found it interesting, didn't have anything more to add, sent him back to Pilate, sort of like, I don't want to be responsible. Now, what about that? Well, guess where Pilate and Herod are? They're in the Herodian palace, because when Pilate came to town, he went to Herod's palace. It was welcome to the Romans. So all this takes place at Herod's palace, the hearings with Pilate and the hearings with Herod. Complicated, right? Basically two trials, a religious trial, civil trial. They each have three episodes to them in the Gospels. 
So now we come to verses 2 through 15, and this will be the civil trial, and he's humiliated by the governor, verses 2 through 15. The question starts in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. So Pilate's already received uh, formal written charges by the Jewish ruling council. There were three charges according to Luke 23, verse 2. The charges were, this man subverts our nation. He opposes uh, payment of taxes to Caesar. Probably not true. And he claims to be Christ, a king. Eh, might be guilty on that one. So uh, those are the charges brought. Uh, and so uh, after having these charges, Pilate says, and, and Pilate throws out the first two charges. They're worthless. But are you the king of the Jews? Oh, this is a political issue. This isn't a religious problem. All those other problems are religious. It's just those problems of those Jewish people. This is a potential political problem. Somebody that would lead a rebellion against the Roman Empire. Pilate says, I've got to check into this. I don't think Pilate was worried, but I think Pilate knew he had to cover his bases uh, for whatever questions would come up later. Um, Jesus answers Pilate's question, yes, you've said so. He answers in the affirmative, but with some qualifications. And uh, we can understand this if we look at John's account in John 19.36. When, when Pilate asks, are you king of the Jews? And he says, yes, it's as you say. And then he says, my kingdom is not of this world. I have a kingdom of another world. And Pilate gets that right off the bat. This guy isn't a problem. He's just maybe a religious nut or something. But he's not a, he's not a threat to Rome. And so Jesus answers yes, but he qualifies it by saying his kingdom is not of this world. The accusations, verses 3 through 5, the chief priests accuse him of many things. Now, we've seen that already. So again, Pilate asks him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. Um, the chief priests want Pilate to know just how serious they are. They have been deeply, def- uh, deeply offended by Jesus. They are greatly afraid of his popularity. You know, wherever Jesus went, there were uh, multitudes following him. And they were asking hard questions about the Jewish faith and about why the leaders of Israel did these things and why Jesus taught things differently. They accused Jesus of... Uh, saying he was going to destroy the temple. They accused him of blasphemy, and they accused him of being a false Messiah. He just happened to be the real Messiah. Verse 5, But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. He He expected Jesus to come back and start giving rational arguments of how they had missed the boat, or even being angry. And Jesus made no reply. This is not what Pilate expected. Verses 6 through 12, the custom of prisoner release. Now, it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So Barabbas was in prison for murder and for insurrection. It meant that he um, 
was charged with revolting against the Roman government. You have to remember that the Jewish, the Jewish people were sort of, they're under the authority of Rome, and they don't like it. And the Jewish people have their own laws and their own culture and their own way of doing things. And the Romans come in, and they want to rule with, a, with an iron fist. And they're harsh. And if things get out of hand, they just come in and start, uh, their justice is eliminating people. If you read in history, Pilate was uh, the prefect of, of uh, Israel for 10 years, and he was very harsh. So Barabbas was in prison for insurrection. Barabbas is probably a member of the Zealots. He's a right-wing nationalist who hated the presence of the Roman government. You know, if we'd have been there, we wouldn't have liked the presence of the Roman government. Um, Barabbas is one of those guys, he's an activist, and he's willing to get involved and sacrifice his life. And I'm not saying he was a good man. I don't know about Barabbas. I just know he was a rebel, and he was in prison, and the Romans didn't really like him. Uh, Barabbas may have been popular among the people because he would take action to what he thought. However, a group of people, whatever happened, a group of people came to Pilate and asked for Barabbas to be released. This was a custom during the Passover. And so uh, they're going to take advantage of this because it's Passover. Pilate tips his hand a little bit in verse 9. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? You see, Pilate thinks this is like a no-brainer. Jesus is not a serious threat here. Obviously, Barabbas is a criminal. If I release Barabbas, what in the world am I going to do with Jesus? I mean, I don't think he's a problem here, folks. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to them. Pilate, Pilate was an experienced political figure. He got what was going on in the, in the, in the city. He understood the religious leaders and how they... Uh, were fearful of Jesus and bothered them that this young buck had so much popularity and they're the authority, they're the smart ones, and nobody's paying attention to them. Um, Pilate didn't think the charges against Jesus were serious. He assumes the people will want Jesus before Barabbas. He just assumes that, verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. So the chief priests. That would be Caiaphas and Annas for sure. They used their leadership influence to incite the crowd, to get the crowd all fired up to release Barabbas. And notice, um, notice Pilate, verse 12. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? I don't call him king of the Jews, but you call him king of the Jews. What shall I do with him? See, Pilate should be done with this. Normally, you don't release two prisoners. You only release one. If he's going to release Barabbas and he's ready to do that because they're asking for it, well, I can't, I can't do anything with Jesus. I mean, I can't crucify him. There's nothing, wrong with, there's nothing wrong with what he's done. He doesn't deserve the punishment. So he, it's like Pilate expects the crowd to want to release Jesus. It would not be normal to release two prisoners. But it seems that Pilate was thinking about releasing two prisoners. The verdict comes in verses 13 through 15. Crucify him, they shouted. It was the crowd that ordered the crucifixion, incited by the leaders. Why? 
What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. So Pilate's just trying to hang in there because he doesn't see any reason to do anything with Jesus. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And now we see motives and the priorities of Pilate. Verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And just very shortly, he says, he had Jesus flogged. Now, if you know much about the New Testament, that's really, really a big deal. And he handed him over to be crucified. So Pilate's done. Um, Pilate wanted to satisfy the crowd. It wasn't about justice. It's a political move. Barabbas is released, and Pilate orders Jesus to be flogged. Now, that meant being whipped. It's also the term used to scourge. And before somebody was crucified, it was customary to have the prisoner scourged. And you know that um, that was a leather whip that had several tails. And attached to those tails were uh, pieces of broken bone designed to be very sharp, designed to be a weapon, uh, pieces of bronze and lead sharpened, uh, designed to be a weapon, so that when a person was flogged, their hands were tied and they were Hands were tied to a post, and and they were leaned over, and their back was exposed. And then two soldiers, one on each side, began to um, bring the the stripes, the blows. And the whole purpose was just to open the prisoner's back. And historians uh, identify that this was so brutal that it was very often that a prisoner's, uh, the bones were exposed in his back, as well as Uh, internal organs. Now, this is just to creep you out, but this is what happened to Jesus. This was great humiliation for the Son of God. So, humiliated by the governor, and now uh, we go to verses 16 through 20, humiliated by the soldiers. We see the sarcasm in verses 16 through 18. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium. That's where Herod and Pilate were staying. They go into the courtyard and they call together the whole company of soldiers. These are Roman Roman soldiers. Uh, When Pilate left Caesarea to come to Jerusalem, he would have brought a cohort of 200 to 600 soldiers And it was just a personal bodyguard, and they were all about policing um, the area and keeping order. So Jesus is taken into the palace courtyard. Verse 17, they put a purple robe on him and twisted together the crown of thorns and set it on him. This is all about making fun of Jesus. He claimed to be the king of kings. Okay, let's treat him like a king. Uh, They put on Jesus a purple robe. What was that? Oh, maybe it was uh, a faded Roman uh, military garment, an old one that nobody used. Maybe it was a faded Roman blanket, and they just put it on Jesus. But what about his back? And they just throw this on, and this, this would have been extremely painful to put on Jesus. And they put on the crown of thorns, and it was just, it was He was to look like a king. He's wearing a crown. He's got on the royal robe. And the the crown of thorns would have uh, exacerbated his head wounds that he'd received already for the number of blows he'd he'd been hit 
Verse 18, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. So this kind of humorous parody continues with the soldiers. Hail, King of the Jews. It was sort of like making fun, like, um, okay, you're a king? This is how we do it with Caesar. We say, hail, and we bow down to Caesar. And so they're sort of playing this game with Jesus. Physical abuse, verses 19, and again and again, they struck him on the head right on top of the crown of thorns where the thorns just would have been pressed in and spit on him. What a, you know, what a great way to humiliate somebody, to spit on him. Mockery, verses 19 and 20, falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe. Did you imagine that thing being yanked off your back after it's been on for uh, just a few minutes or a couple hours? Um, they jerked this off his back. They took off the purple robe. They put on his clothes on him. So now they're going to put something on top. And I don't imagine they were very gentle when they put clothes back on him. Um, and they led him away. For crucifixion. That would be four executioners, four trained soldiers who now were going to accompany Jesus to the crucifixion where we're going to pick it up next week. Now, I want to remind us that there's a bigger plan to this whole thing. There was a bigger plan. This is Jesus' humiliation. This looks like this is like total mission failure on Jesus' part. It's going to get worse before it gets better, by the way. Um, there's a famous uh, sermon that I always love, and it's called, It's Friday, But Sunday's Coming. Friday was dark. Friday was discouraging. Friday seemed like defeat. Sunday is coming. There's going to be a resurrection. There's hope. That's true every day, by the way. The plan. Let's go back to Mark 10, 33 through 34. Jesus said this was coming. Several days earlier, weeks earlier, Mark 10, 33 and 34, this is what he told his disciples. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. There's the whole story. There's his humiliation Friday, but Sunday's coming. Three days later, he will arise. We're not there yet, though, folks. We're not there yet. There is a plan. God sent his son to this earth. The son of God left heaven to come to this earth with a purpose to become a man, to become human. John 3, 16 uh, says this, For God so loved the world that he gave us one and only son, that whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. So we know what's going to happen after Mark 15. We know that Jesus will die. We know that he's resurrected. The tomb is empty on Easter Sunday morning. We know that. That he came, God sent him, and he would die on the cross. And the reason God did it was because of his love. Because he loves people. He loves all people. And he sent his son, Jesus, so that whoever, anyone who believes in him will not perish. And that's a reference to 
eternal death. That's a reference to hell. Will not go to hell, but have eternal life, but have an eternal relationship with God, but have heaven as their home. Romans 5.8 says it this way, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were yet Sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was because of God's love for us. That's why he sent Jesus. Um, Christ died for us. This is something Jesus did because there were things that we couldn't do. Why did Christ Die for us. Here's why I did it. First of all, the Bible says we're all sinners. All of us, every person. Every person ever born except Jesus is a sinner, was a sinner, will be a sinner. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Scripture says all. Uh, we, we, we fail God in our attitudes and our actions. Every person. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it's true of all people. I'm a sinner. Secondly, the consequences for our sin or for my sin is eternal death or what Jesus calls hell. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's not a reference to physical death. It's a reference to spiritual death. Eternal separation from God. Jesus called it hell. There are consequences. That's what we earn because of sin. That's what gets charged to our account because of sin. One of the hardest things to communicate to people is that God solved this problem for us. That's why he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to die for us. Jesus was our substitute. Uh, let's go back to Romans 5.8. Next one. There you go. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was our substitute. The wages of sin is death. That's what I deserved. But he was my substitute. He died for me. And in doing that, he paid the penalty for my sins. And he paid the penalty of, this is amazing. He paid for the penalty of the sins of the entire world, every person. How could he do that? His life is infinitely valuable, greater than any sin penalty. No matter how many people are born and sin, his life is more valuable than all of it, and the sin penalty is paid in full. And the Father has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as paid in full. So there's one requirement. It's very simple. It's to come to God on God's terms. And that's what, um, can we just go back one more to John 3.16? Here's God's terms. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, and you can put your name in there, it's for, for any person who wants this, whoever believes in him shall not perish. God's requirement is to believe. It's to trust him. It's to trust Jesus for who he is and what he's done. That he died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sin. You know, I know a lot of you in this room know that. You know it for sure. You've placed your faith in Jesus. You've received God's forgiveness. 
and you're grateful. That's one of the reasons you're here today is because you want to give praise to God. But I know there's probably people here today who just aren't sure about this. They know they're maybe a little bit interested. Maybe this is kind of new to you. And I just want you to know that God has one requirement for you, and that's it all starts with trusting Jesus and believing what he's done for you, that he died on the cross for you, and that's enough. That's all it takes for you to have all of your sins forgiven. And so God wants you to believe in his son, Jesus. Scripture says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a gift. The gift has to be received by faith, by believing in Jesus. One of the ways that you can express faith is by prayer. And I'd like to give us an opportunity, if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if this is new, but something you're not clear about, I want to invite you to pray with me this morning. And you can, I want you to pray silently. It's from your heart. It's between you and God. It's not between um, any, you and anybody in this room. And uh, the prayer is going to go like this. And I'm going to read the prayer so that you can understand it. So I don't want you to have to pray anything that, that, uh, to surprise you. And then if that makes sense, I'm going to go through the prayer a second time. And um, you can just join me the second time. But here's the prayer. Dear God, that I, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for me. He died so that I can have life. Thank you for forgiving my sin. I welcome you into my life. Please help me to live in a way that honors you. I trust you, Jesus. Amen. Okay? Does that make sense to you? If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you right now to pray with me silently from your heart and see and see if this just makes sense. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe he died so I can have life. Thank you for forgiving my sins. I welcome you, Jesus, into my life right now. Please help me to live in a way that honors you. I trust you now, Jesus. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me silently from your heart, would you mind just slipping up your hand so I could see? Just Slip up your hand if you prayed with me silently from your heart. Anyone else? Thank you. You can put your hand down. Thank you. Father, I thank you for Jesus and his death on the cross for us, for our sins. Thank you for those people who prayed with me this morning. And I pray that they might sense your presence in a powerful way, that they might sense the forgiveness of their sins, and have hope for the future. And I pray that they will rely on you and that you would help them each day. And God, I just want to pray for all of us in this room, those of us who uh, profess to follow Christ, that we not have a casual appreciation of Jesus because he's more than an old security blanket. He is a precious treasure for us to value. May we live in a way that shows that for Jesus' sake. Amen.